Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're going to take a very interesting look at environmental mediation. Environmental mediator Lucy Moore and her book Common Ground on Hostile Turf today. First, a couple of responses to a couple of recent shows. On th- uh, Thursday, I believe it was, we had uh, on with us uh, Paul Rusesa Bagina, whose story was made famous in the film Hotel Rwanda. Uh, his autobiography, uh, Common Man, um, details his experiences during the Rwandan genocide. And at the tail end of the show, we weren't able to get this on, uh, we got a tweet from Edward K.A., who says, For balance, look at InsideTheHotelRwanda.com. Uh, and uh, Edward uh, says, uh, because of the film, the real-life Rusesa Begina has been compared to Oscar Schindler for saving some 1,200 people in the Hotel Mille Collines in uh, Rwanda. But unbeknownst to the public, he says, the hotel's refugees don't endorse Rusesa Begina's version of the events. And so he urges you to uh, take a look for balance at InsideTheHotelRwanda.com. So we'll just pass that along to you. If you would like to uh, go there, you certainly can. And this in response to a program we did, I believe this is last week, uh, on oil and gas development in the Moab area, Grand County. And ironically, all of our calls, responses, were from Uinta County, just to the north. So here is uh, a response from Tamara Ratita. She says, hello, in your program yesterday, Tom Williams talked about how when he goes to Vernal, he sees many bumper stickers that say, I love drilling. And he wondered what people in the area thought of these. I'm from the Uinta Basin. I don't like these bumper stickers, and I know of many people who also don't like them. It seems like there are so many places that we go now that you can't go far without seeing all of these drill sites. It's an eyesore. It's also polluting our water and destroying the land. There's a man we know who works for one of the oil companies. He said that they ask them to dump the dirty water from the oil wells into the rivers, and that he and the other drivers do this. This is wrong and needs to change. I think there's already too much drilling in our area. We need to do more with clean energy like solar and wind. We need to protect our lands and water. So that is uh, Tamra responding to the program on uh, uh, Grand County and oil and gas development there. Keep those emails coming. The uh, way to respond is upraxcess at gmail.com. You can respond to today's program there as well, upraxcess at gmail.com. To today's program, then, in our increasingly polarized society, there are constant calls for compromise, for coming together. For many, these are empty talking points. For Lucy Moore, their life's work. As an environmental mediator, she spent the past quarter century resolving conflicts that appeared utterly intractable. In her book, Common Ground on Hostile Turf, she shares the most compelling stories of her career, offering insight and inspiration to anyone caught in a seemingly hopeless dispute. She's worked on a variety of issues, from radioactive waste storage to loss of traditional grazing uh, lands. More importantly, she's worked with diverse groups and individuals, ranchers, environmental activists, government agencies, corporations, tribal groups, and many more. After decades spent at the negotiating table, she's learned that a case does not turn on facts, legal merit, or moral superiority. It turns on people. So we're going to hear some of those stories on the program today. Lucy Moore joins us, uh, I believe, from New Mexico. Welcome to the program. Tom, thank you so much. I'm delighted to uh, have some time with you and your audience. Uh, so you, I believe you grew up in the Seattle area. I did. I'm a native Seattleite. Um, I went uh, east to college and then made a big leap and ended up in the middle of Navajo country uh, back in the late 60s and uh, into the mid-70s. So that was a wonderful cross-cultural um, 
experience for me and kind of uh, gave me a foundation for my later work. Why did you go originally to Navajo country? Uh, well, I was a newlywed, and, and in those days you followed your spouse. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so um, uh, he, he had a, um, uh, a job with the legal services program, newly formed legal services program there in Chinle, Arizona, uh, Canyon de Chez country, just gorgeous in uh, northeastern uh, Arizona. And so uh, we, um, we went there as newlyweds, very idealistic, naive uh, in, in those days when we really thought we could perhaps save a little corner of the world. Uh, and it was just such an education for me to, to find myself there in a, in a, uh, as a minority, I must add. Uh, the, uh, the non-Indian, non-Navajo population in Chinle was probably about 1%. Uh, so we made up a good part of it. And to find yourself in, in, in that kind of position, in a very foreign uh, culture, wanting to help desperately with all kinds of idealistic uh, uh, visions and uh, goals was, uh, was a, a great learning ground for me. And, and I think what I learned that served me well in the rest of my career was the importance of um, taking your time learning and listening, learning by listening and observing uh, those that are around you. If you want to help, find out what it is they need. Don't come rushing forward with your bright idea, no matter how bright you think it is. So I actually wrote a memoir, uh, Seven Years in Navajo Country, um, about uh, a kind of a cross-cultural memoir um, with some with some kind of some funny and some touching and some downright sad stories mm -hmm. <laughs> about that uh, growth experience. But that was a really a, um, a formative formative part of my life that I'm very grateful for. And at some point you uh, you became an environmental mediator. And I, I wonder, on, on one side, why would anyone <laughs> do that? I mean, people in the West know <laughs> that uh, the, these uh, debates uh, just can be intractable over, over, you know, closely held beliefs and, and feelings about the, about the land. It's absolutely true. And I have asked myself, what on earth are you doing here? Um, but I think that I've thought a lot about it and reflected looking inward, and I really believe that mediators are born, um, not particularly trained or, or directed to be mediators. You, you have within you this uh, drive to be in the middle, to uh, seek out chaos and to seek out conflict and to, and to try to interpret one side to the other and to try to find that common ground. Um, I don't know where it comes from. I, I'm an only child of parents that didn't get along very well, and I uh, found myself, I think, uh, mediating from a very young age, and so maybe that was part of it. But I'm just constitutionally put together to want to be in the middle. Um, and I have friends who say, oh, my gosh, how can you... How can you be at the table with this side or that side? You know, they are, they are the evil doers. Uh, and I, I absolutely never feel that way. When, I, when I'm in uh, a room at a table with a group that are disputing with all sides, uh, their industry, environment, ranchers, uh, government, um, you know, those are human beings sitting there with real problems. They are not... Um, evil forces, uh, and, and that's what I care about, are the humans at the table helping them see each other and uh, in, in real human terms and 
and try to uh, get past the rhetoric, the, the uh, scientific data arguments, um, all of the things that we kind of throw up there to defend ourselves and to protect ourselves um, against uh, that other side. I try to help um, bring down those barriers and, and help people have good conversations with each other. So so that's what I do. I, I continue to really love it. Hmm. I wonder if you tell us the story, uh, I think this might be Chapter 2, um, I learned a new word here, asakia. This is, uh, yes. these are people with pretty old and therefore, you know, uh, high priority water rights who are making a living off the land through canals. Uh, I guess asakia mean, this, these are canal, I guess, uh, communal canals. Right. They're and, little, uh, little hand dug, uh, hand dug irrigation ditches. Yeah. And so a certain point, um, environmental groups want to uh, change uh, s- some laws about the about water rights and about the river. They're concerned about the health of the river. Um, and the, the, right. the Asakia members, this organization, uh, Hispanic, I believe, um, they're very skeptical of these environmentalists. And you, representing a foundation, I believe, go to, go to the meeting. You can take it from there. Oh, that's right. That's right, Tom. Uh, it was a re- I put it in the book because it was such a such a seminal moment for me. Um, I was working for a nonprofit. Uh, we were funded by the Ford Foundation, and the Ford Foundation was very interested in helping local uh, Hispanic and tribal communities um, uh, prosper in northern New Mexico, where, uh, of course, the um, uh, living cost the living is very. Uh, difficult, and it's really subsistence for a lot of people. And so as uh, fledgling mediators, I was uh, sent out to attend this meeting that was pulled together by ASEQIA leadership, and that's A-C-E-Q-U-I-A, and it's an old, old Spanish word uh, that means hand-dug irrigation ditches, a system of. And northern New Mexico is uh, laced with these uh, ditch systems, and in fact, the, the culture and the society of the villages in northern New Mexico is uh, based on and, and revolves around this ditch system. The maintenance is required every year, and everybody goes out and takes a hand, takes a shovel literally, and helps maintain these ditches. They are very important cores uh, to the existence of the communities. So interestingly enough, the environmental community in New Mexico, and this is uh, some 20 years ago probably, uh, was pushing very hard for in-stream flow legislation. Uh, They were uh, concerned that New Mexico was one of the very last states, I think the last, to adopt in-stream flow, and they were really feeling that with our precious, fragile waters uh, and very little of them in New Mexico, we needed to be sure that the rivers themselves had their own water uh, and had their right to their own water to protect against all the competing forces. Now, you might think that Asekias would think this was a good idea to keep water in the stream. They're irrigating off of rivers. So if there's water in the river and then there's going to be water for the Asekia, is this not a win-win? No, this was not a win-win at all. Asekias felt extremely threatened by the environmental movement, and I went to this meeting to try to learn more about it and see if there was a way that I could maybe build bridges between the two in my 
still idealistic. I seem to <laughs> continue to be idealistic even after leaving Navajo land. And what I found at the meeting was uh, great hostility against not only environmentalists, and let me explain the reason they felt that in-stream flow was such a threat. They feared that that um, water rights in New Mexico, of course, can be bought and sold. So if there was a water right for in-stream flow, they feared that environmentalists, with all of their large bags of money, because that's the perception uh, often of environmentalists, that they're wealthy outsiders who come in with great connections to great amounts of money and power. So they feared that environmentalists would buy up water rights on the open market to put into the stream for in-stream flow. And where would the most valuable water rights be located that they could buy? With the Asequias who have, next to the tribes in New Mexico, the oldest dates of, of earliest use in New Mexico, as in most western states, states as you know, it's priority in, uh, in time, um, a priority right based on the earliest use. Those who use the water earliest receive the um, earliest dates and the best water rights. So they feared that the environmentalists would get out there on the open market and just gobble up um, all of the uh, all the Asakia water rights, and that they, being poor subsistence farmers, would be vulnerable to that, and that the whole system would begin to collapse in a domino fashion. What I also learned when I was there was that there was great hostility against me as an outsider, an interimitido, uh, an, a butter inner, you might say, uh, into this um, into this dispute and into this subject. And I actually was criticized publicly for being there. What are you doing there? You're just uh, interfering and you're trying to capitalize on what our real problems are. You're trying to make a name for yourself. Um, you fancy outsiders who come from Eastern schools. So I got up and left. I said, excuse me, I don't want to interfere with this meeting, so I will leave. I was followed out by a very angry Asakia irrigator, uh, one of the leaders of one of the Asakias in one of the villages up north in New Mexico, who really was very angry and didn't want to let me just slink away un, uh, unconfronted. And so he confronted me. And his message was, and what he said to me was, who are you? And so I explained that I was a mediator, that I was with Western Network, this nice, do-good nonprofit that we were trying to help. He interrupted me immediately. No, no, who are you? And I, I was getting flustered, and I tried to explain again what my function was. I uh, gradually, thanks to his persistence and his increasing passion, I saw that what he wanted to know was, who was I? Who who really was I? Anyway, who was this woman that came into this meeting, and what was she about? So I began to explain a little embarrassed and self-conscious who I was, that I'd grown up in Seattle, that I'd gone east to college, that I'd ended up in Navajo country, etc., and and then he began to calm down. It was extremely interesting. And then he asked me, where do you live? I said, outside Santa Fe. He wanted to know, um, uh, did I have any water rights? And for heaven's sakes, no one in my life had ever asked me, do you own water rights? That's not something you ask, uh, you know, an Anglo newcomer to town. Um, 
And it just wasn't something I'd ever even thought about. And I had to think about it. And I said, no, I don't. I'm on a community well system. Um, and no, I don't have any water rights, and I'm not part of an acequia. Aha, uh-huh, he said, aha, uh-huh, well. Um, and he put his uh, hat back on, which he had flung on the floor in anger before, and kind of buttoned up his jacket. It was cold outside, and he was preparing to leave. And I said, well, I hope maybe we can talk again sometime. And he said, yes, maybe we can do that. And we shook hands, which was kind of amazing, given the conversation we'd been through. Um, and uh, and we, we parted ways. But for me, it was a very big lesson, uh, not only in the relationship between environmentalists and the traditional community land users, uh, land owners, which can include ranchers as well as farmers and others, uh, but it also was a real lesson about, about the outsider, about being the outsider, how you're perceived, how carefully you need to tread, um, and how seriously you need to learn about where you are and find some respect and for, for that culture that you have uh, moved into. So I'll, I'll, um, I will end my story and my lesson on this one here. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Tom. Uh, so he was looking for, I think one of his, the key questions was, can I trust this person? Can, can I can exactly. I trust this person that they're coming from good motives? Can I work with this person? Can I, you know, can we even talk? Exactly, exactly. And as long as I just gave my professional rap, um, that was not at all of interest to him. And that's one key to working, I think, working with anybody, but of any culture, of any race. But I learn, I've learned it over and over in in cross-cultural situations that, that who you really are is is who you are as a human being. What is your life story? What where 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 have you been and what have you learned and what do you how do you see yourself in the world around you? Can you be humble? Can you laugh at yourself? Do you know that you inevitably make mistakes and are you willing to admit that? And uh and and do you care? Do you have caring and empathy for those around you? Um uh, the, those are the things that they're looking for, that well, any of us are looking for. Right. One of the other things I found interesting in this chapter, uh, and all throughout the book you say one of the lessons you've learned is that it's not necessarily logic or legal merit or facts. It's people. Of course, when you talk about right. people, it, it gets <laughs> messy and confusing. Uh, so, for example, in this story with the with the environmentalists and, and the river and the Asakia members, the environmentalists, one of their motives was um, embarrassment. They're embarrassed that they're the last state that doesn't have these particular laws in place. That's right. I, I, I do think that was part of their motive. Um, uh, and, and I think that how, you know, that's, a, that's an important thing to realize, too, how we are perceived by, by our supporters, by those whose, whose opinions we care about, uh, can matter a lot, and that's true of, in this case, of the Asakias and of any party at the table. You're you're there, representing yourself and your interest, uh, but you're also representing that broader group that's out there that uh, that shares your views. and And I think New Mexico environmentalists in those days cared desperately to. This was the frontier. This was where the work needed to be done, and they cared desperately about showing that they were doing that, and they 
were really surprised and hurt that they did not find natural allies in the Hispanic Asequia community. Uh, they, they assumed that work on behalf of the environment, on behalf of, of healthy rivers and healthy riparian areas would be something that they would be thanked for. They would be congratulated for being on that side and for, for helping out. And this was a very rude awakening and has continued to be a rude awakening, really, um, for many of them um, uh, throughout my career. I continue to run into this, this kind of shock and bewilderment of why don't they, why are they not on my side? Hmm. Um, and I find it, um, I find it very touching because the, the, the passion is there and the desire to make a better environment and world for all of us is uh, very deeply held uh, in, for, for the great majority of the environmental movement. So given that trust is absolutely needed if, if people are going to can sit down and talk, let alone negotiate, and the fact that a lot of these um, disputes are just seemingly intractable, and there's a lot of history behind it a lot of times, how do you get people mm-hmm. to, to come together? Well, um, I think that's, that's, uh, that's a, a, a long answer, and I will try to make it short. Um, the, in, in the work I do, I, I engage in processes uh, that are formally put together where there are representatives of each side. Uh, um, uh, I'll, I'll give an example of, um, of a case that I had at Grand Canyon that concerned overflight noise and the need to control the noise from the air tour uh, flights over Grand Canyon. This was a few years ago. And so what one of the keys to bringing people together in as positive a way, in as optimistic and hopeful a way as possible, is to engage them from the beginning in the development of whatever that forum is going to be, whatever that table is going to look like, how it's going to operate, who's going to be there to talk about and to resolve and to find common ground on those really difficult issues. So in that case, I worked with the FAA and the Park Service at Grand Canyon to form, to create a committee of 21 that represented a huge variety of interests, including four tribes, three environmental organizations, recreational interests, the air, the, of course, the air tour industry, the the commercial jet industry, the Fish and Wildlife Service for endangered species. Um, I can't remember all of the others, but there were many. And then we in, we brought that group together and we asked them, first of all, to tell us about, we spent an entire day having them tell us about themselves, introduce themselves in whatever way they wanted to introduce themselves. So we focused on the relationship first, which was difficult to sell to the agencies, I would say, because, and to all the participants for that matter, because there is such a rush to get down to the problem, get down to the heart of the matter, and let's talk about the, what divides us. We can't wait to talk about the conflict and all the differences that we have. And what I insisted on was a good amount of time to, to introduce ourselves so that we could talk about or listen about and listen to and talk about what it is we have in common. And, of course, 
there was enormous common ground when people began to tell their stories, why they were at the table, what they cared about most, where they came from, about their families, about painful things in their past, about where this passion came from for this particular thing. Um, there was a great um, common grounding, I would call it, uh, and that gave us a very good beginning. The second thing that we did in order to make it the best possible process with the best uh chance of success was to um, include all of those parties in deciding how it was they were going to operate with each other. So they developed, after their introductions, a set of protocols, we called them, you could call them ground rules or uh, operating procedures, but everything from um, not interrupting each other to how to handle um, absences of members, because we were going to be meeting for several years. Um, to uh, how to handle the press. Would the press be allowed to come into the meetings or not? How would we report out the progress of our uh, conversations? Um, what about all alternate members? Would they have a voice in the final decision-making or not? So some very big issues, really, about the makeup, the structure, and the operation of this committee. So those, those things that I've talked about, Tom, are, are really structural, procedural things that I do to try to set the ground, set the framework, make the landscape as, as, um, as fertile as possible for a good conversation. Once we get into the issues, then there are other things that, that can be done to try to obviously calm down the passions when they arise and redirect conversations into more um, uh, uh, profitable areas and things like that. We're talking with Lucy Moore on the program today. Her book is Common Ground on Hostile Turf. Uh, it's published by uh, Island Press, I believe, and uh, it's, uh, it was released uh, last year. It's composed of uh, experiences as an environmental mediator. Lucy Moore is an environmental mediator. Uh, she gets right in the middle of these seemingly intractable disputes over landscape, and it ends up being uh, disputes over uh, culture and values as well. Uh, she uh, gives us some lessons, of course, very applicable to uh, today. All you have to do is uh, pick up the latest newspaper to see uh, the, the latest uh, dispute. Uh, we're going to talk more with Lucy Moore following a brief break. UPR explores what your home says about you in its new series, My Address Is. UPR reporters spoke with individuals from all walks of life about how their homes reflect who they are and to discuss close-to-home issues facing our friends and families. Our home was our family, and all we need to do is find a house to put it in. Dairy farming has been a good life for me. Tune in during All Things Considered to hear how your neighbors live with My Address Is. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Humanities Council, empowering Utahns to improve their communities through active engagement in the humanities. Online at utahhumanities.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In our increasingly polarized society, there are constant calls for compromise, for coming together. For many, these are empty talking points. For Lucy Moore, they're a life's work. 
As an environmental mediator, she's spent the past quarter century resolving conflicts that appeared utterly intractable. And her book is Common Ground on Hostile Turf. We're talking with Lucy Moore on the program today. You can join us by phone at 1-800-826-1495. Do you have an experience, perhaps in this area, a dispute that was resolved or not uh, resolved? you have a question or comment, we'd love to hear from you. 1-800-826-1495. Or you can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com. Upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. Parenthetically, Lucy Moore, and I don't know whether you get this question, um... When we talk about seemingly intractable disputes, my mind goes to Congress. Uh, I, <laughs> I don't know if you have, if you have some, uh, you know, uh, if you were to mediate between the Republicans and Democrats in, in Congress, I guess it would be some of these same principles that you would like to implement that we've, we've been talking about. Well, yeah, that would, uh, I was going to say in my dreams, but I think it's more like in my nightmares. <laughs> so I, I, uh, I, I despair, along with uh, much of the country, over the intractable nature of that conflict. I, I can't help but wish that um, there could be, and maybe this is happening, but that there could be private, out-of-the-public-eye discussions going on, um, perhaps with a mediator. I would love to be part of that as long as it was outside of the public eye and away from the press. I just think that the, the grandstanding that has become apparently uh, mandatory um, when one is uh, out in public or being interviewed by the press is incredibly destructive. And that I feel, I feel kind of sorry, although very frustrated, with members of Congress who, who are put on the spot, put up there in front of everybody to try to uh, defend themselves, and I wish that there was a, um, I wish there was a value put on, on, on um, conciliatory and and productive compromise kind of uh, messages from members of Congress that they would be congratulated when they talked about how they had worked out a deal. But we seem to be in a very different mode. Uh, I, I feel I feel very bad about it, and I. If if I were called in or whoever might be called in, it just would have to be an invisible behind-the-scenes process, mm-hmm. I think. And as you say, one of the themes, it's about people, and I, I would expect that the, as you, you put it, this the grandstanding, which seems to be, you know, required to, today in, in politics, that, that can't help but hurt, to, you know, backroom relationships. That, that's how right. th- things used to get done, I think, uh, relationships across the aisle. I think that's right. But if you've uh, heard all this grandstanding from your opponent, uh, it's that that's one more hurdle to get over when you, when you do maybe get together in a potentially productive setting. And I find this with uh, almost everybody I work with who comes to the negotiating table in one of these cases. Uh, the Grand Canyon case had a 20-year backlog um, of of terrible history among the participants between the environmentalists and the air tour industry and the recreationalists. Uh, they had been battling each other in court, in the press, uh, uh, in public, in Congress. They had been doing everything they could to uh, resolve this. The, the, the air tour industry obviously to protect their business interests 
driven out of business, and the environmentalists, uh, many wanted to return to, let's say, 1850s at Grand Canyon and have zero uh, air tour noise. Um, so, so here they come uh, after, what, actually one of the reasons that they agreed to come to the table, because in mediation, all the parties have to come voluntarily, uh, at least in the kind of work that I do. So they all did. The key players agreed to come voluntarily. And one reason they said they would come was they were exhausted. They were just exhausted. They beat each other up, and they just had nothing more to give. And so they might as well straggle, stagger into this uh, table, into this room, and sit down and see what happened. Um, so that's the sad truth, that that we're dividing each other. The more, the more of this... Uh, hostility and beating each other up that happens. I wonder if I could uh, uh, rip a case from uh, from recent headlines, at least here at UPR. We did a program a couple of weeks ago on the Antiquities Act, um, which uh, part of which, uh, as you know, gives the president the power to unilaterally create a national monument. Uh, and uh, Representative Rob Bishop here in the 1st District in Utah, is proposing some changes. He wants that reformed a bit to take away some of that power from the president. Um, conservationists say that that is still needed, that Congress is moving very slowly with, you know, they have the power to create, to protect lands, but they don't do it. And so it's still needed. And and so we had a program on this. But it seemed to me that uh, the sides were sort of talking past each other on this program. This probably reflects the the greater reality. We had some comments from people uh, saying, I really appreciate you having on Representative Mike Noel, who definitely represents uh, sort of the conservative, you know, uh, land uh, people in in southern Utah. And other people who said, uh, just made me sick to my stomach to hear Representative Noel, sort of just talking past each other. And I, I wonder if you were called in to mediate this, what you would do to get people talking to each other. Yeah, um, I have been following that a little bit, Tom, and I did hear part of your program on that and was extremely interested in, and a lot of it certainly rang true to me. I, I'm afraid that, and I think this also goes to the Bundy case in Nevada, that the lines are drawn very deep in the sand about the role of the federal government um, and the... And the um, the, and the you know ability of the federal government to, in the eyes of some, lock up uh, federal lands from from um, the use of those who feel it is their um, constitutional right to use those lands. And I, I just think this is one of those cases that's almost become uh, on the verge of religious. And and we mediators know that we can never mediate uh, religion, and actually should not mediate religion in any case where religion, where religious belief is, is part of the makeup, and, and it almost feels like that to me. I do think there are things that could be done at uh, Grand Staircase Escalante and, and with this issue. I think there are, uh, I mean, I've done this same kind of work in um, situations with tribes who have uh, some very strong differences with Forest Service uh, uh, lands and BLM lands. Uh, in other words, the federal government has taken over sacred, traditionally used lands from tribal people, and there is great bitterness there, and and lawsuits and uh, etc. And there are I have I have brought 
them together in certain cases um, that I need to be confidential. But there are ways of of working out arrangements of uh, of um, of schedules of access uh, that that can be that can be helpful and that can bring some resolution, if not total resolution, to the case. But again, it needs to be, I think, well thought out. It would need to, um, any process would need to include all sides in the development of that process, as I said before, and have them all at the table and have it be as um, um, uh, private as possible for the maximum progress. Um, but it's uh, that is um, that is a very tough one, a very tough one. We have and, a couple of. Uh, oh, go ahead, and then we have a couple of callers. Um, oh, we have a couple of callers. Great, yeah. great. Um, well, I'd love to hear from them. Yeah. Okay. Uh, first up is William in Wellsville. Glad you called, William. Uh, go ahead with your question or comment. Uh, I've read a book uh, by Chaim Gannat uh, titled "You Can Negotiate Anything." Uh, I enjoyed that book. Is is her book similar to that, or is it more uh, uh, a history of cases that she's uh, uh, worked on? I'll, I'll, yeah, well, I'll let her um, answer that. Yeah, my yeah my book is really um, kind of my ten favorite and most um, educational cases for for me as an evolving mediator. So it's sort of a combination memoir of a mediator. Um, uh, gaining gradually and painfully often expertise in the field through uh, through work in the trenches. So these are ten stories from the trenches that are not so much about uh, process and technique, and uh, this is not a mediator's manual. These are stories for people to learn about where conflict comes from, how to uh, uh, how to how to be in the conflict, how to work your way through it, whether you're a participant or or uh, or somebody trying to help resolve it. Uh, so these are stories about about people um, and more than um, more than a manual, I would say. Uh, William, what's your thirty second uh, nutshell of, of negotiate anything? What's what's that book about? Well, uh, I have a question, uh, or maybe it's not a question. Uh, the, first of all, the negotiate anything book was uh, you. You first of all bring people together and uh, and find out just how many things they have in common. And uh, I could see that she had done that in the case with the uh, the Grand Canyon, and and get them to see each other as people, and not not organizations. And that's great. That's another thing that I find in, in this book that I'd read. Uh, I have a question though about what do you think about Congress? And, and I, I feel like why can't they do anything? And and this is my opinion, and I want to know what you think about it. I think that, that, that most Americans today are so fed up with the way Congress works that they have sent new congressmen there who don't want to play the good old boy game that they always have been playing in the past that helps them get something done, where they say, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine, and we'll get this thing done. They've gotten people, the whole America, I think, is tired of that because they're thinking of what is, what is good for their party rather than our country. And now that there are people being sent there by the public who do not want to play that game, they want to have what's done for the good of the country, not their party, that we're not having anything done. I agree, William. I agree completely. I, and it, uh, it's, it's, it makes me very sad. Uh, and I think that there's a, 
a public uh, civic consciousness that's sadly missing here. We, we're not, I don't, I'm speaking in incredible generalities, but it seems as if the voting public has become very self-centered, self-serving, and has no concept or little concept of of other uh, needs and interests and um, uh, in the country, who's out? Who else is out there besides me? Who else needs something? How can we bring everybody up uh, to a certain level of um, of safety and health in this country? That that seems it seems as if we used to have be able uh, be able to. Um, to conceive of and and have that kind of imag- imagination that 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 greater public imagination than we do now, and I, I really mourn uh, the loss of what seems to me empathy for uh, those around us uh, and um, the the ability to to listen in a calm way to those with other views and kind of try to understand what's going on. And and also I think we're we're missing and I, I I see this these are the things that I deal with in my negotiations, you know it's critical to be willing to take a risk to to just step out there and um, and live live your ideals in some way and express express how you feel and how you think things should go, uh, risky as it may be. You may not get reelected. You may be laughed at by your neighbors. You, who knows what the stakes are? They may be the stakes may be very great, may not be so great. But um, we really need to be willing to take those risks. And it feels as if we're all, as a country, frightened, um, defensive, um, and and worried about ourselves. And and I think so. I, that's really a long-winded answer to, or a kind of uh, compliment to your. Um, thought that we're that our voting is uh, is pretty self centered. William, uh, appreciate the oh. call. Very interesting. Okay, thank you. Thank Bye-bye. you. We go next to Bettina in Springdale. Bettina, glad you called. Go ahead with your question. Oh, hi, how are you? Um, I love hearing what she has to say. I think we've turned our Congress into a win lose, like a sporting event, and then the American people are the ones who are losing. Um, I don't think there should be an aisle. I think they should do like they do in school, and they go Republican, Democrat, Independent, Republican, Democrat, and seat them all uh, together in that way so they can't draw battle lines. Um, I know I listened to Mike Noel when you had him on a few weeks ago, and I was very disappointed in his approach. I listened to the other side and they seemed not to be attacking somebody, namely the president. And it seems like um, we need a bad guy. And so uh, right now Obama's the bad guy. And the, and I don't think that works for our country either. And I know that there's a group of uh, women called the 13 Grandmothers that are indigenous women that travel around. and. Their, their question is, how will this um, affect any decisions, decisions we make right now? How will it, it affect the next seven generations? And if our politicians were required to ask that question uh, any time there was a, 
a law or decision made, how will it affect the next seven generations? Yeah, that, that sounds interesting. The, the 13 grandmothers. Uh, yeah. thank, thanks, Bettina. Appreciate those comments. Okay, thanks. Bye. Uh, your response to, to uh, any of those points? We'll see more. Yeah, I I agree with her. Uh, I agree with her completely. I think, and I and I love to hear about the thirteen grandmothers, um, and would that they would get some time on Fox News or CNN, uh, you know, as much time as uh, Mr. Bundy. Um, I, uh, this is exactly what we need to be thinking about as a country and as a world. Mm-hmm. So uh, yes, Athena, I'm I'm with you. Yeah, as I mentioned, you know, you just you can rip these things from the headlines, no matter. <laughs> What time and and I I think the sort of the marquee case right now and you made reference to it is the Bundy case, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and and that just is you know is over over time and it's come to a head and it's uh, it's uh, it's just very polarized and very heated. Right, right, and 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 frightening. I mean, I think it's frightening. Um, it's uh, just when guns when guns become uh, one of the means of expression. Uh, we're in real trouble. Yeah. What? So, uh, so uh, I wonder if you would uh, entertain this, you know, flight of fancy. If if you were called in to, to mediate that, I, I guess there probably have to be some preconditions on that. You couldn't go in right yeah, now. There, there would have to be a lot, and I don't know. You know, I I guess I'd be surprised if the Bundy family and supporters would voluntarily come to the table. Um, it seems to me they've gone past that. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they did, I would um, start out very carefully with um, some very with agreements uh, on both sides, probably agreed to separately before bringing them together about how we were going to uh, talk with each other uh, and what uh, the tone was going to be. And I would be uh, very directive and very controlling of that situation when uh, I did get both sides together. That would be a case where my usual kind of flexible style uh, would not would not work. Mm-hmm. I would need to really make this a rather formal process. And I don't know. I, I would not hold out a lot of hope that we could even get it started. But yeah. that would be uh, my approach. I, I, we just have a couple of minutes left. Uh, I wanted to get to a, a, a theme that uh, sort of runs through your book, and that, that's a question you pose specifically to environmentalists mm-hmm, about mm-hmm. the best way to come to the table. Yeah, over the years I have been concerned. I've had more than one case where the one of the environmental interests at the table has held out uh, and not given consensus at the end when the when the um, when the agreement, the resolution of the dispute, um, had something to offer the environmental side, and yet sticking to principle, holding the hard line, um, not wanting to disappoint uh, perhaps a board of directors, perhaps a membership out there, an angry membership, don't give an inch, you know, stick to your guns. Um, the environmental representative has. Uh, turned down every part of an agreement, even though um, there may be some benefits in it. And my question, there's one of those stories in the book, and my question to environmentalists in general uh, is, is that worth it? Um, is, there, uh, is it? is it worth it to hold that line, walk away from the table, really with 
no gain at all with the status quo, whatever it was you went in with, the status quo, and having perhaps uh, made some new enemies or certainly not made new friends in the process. Uh, is that really worth it, or or is it a better strategy to make those relationships, to do some um, some some trading, to do some negotiating, and come out with the best possible deal you can, absolutely, but not the perfect deal, and build on that. Then you find yourself in a position the next time you're at a slightly better, uh, you're, you're in a, a better position, you've moved forward uh, somewhat incrementally in the direction you want to go, and you can move again a little more. Um, and I would just ask environmentalists, particularly the, the, the really passionate ones that are that are um, uh, that have those deeply held beliefs and feel that this is an urgent matter and that they cannot give an inch and they should not or they are betraying their cause just just think about it just think about it and um, uh, and, and make make your decision as you need to but that that would be a piece of key advice um, for for environmentalists and actually for any interest, uh, anyone at the table who who's, who feels that uh, deep need to not give an inch. Is that really what you want to do? We're out of time. We'll leave it there. Um, Lucy Moore is an environmental mediator. Some fascinating stories in her book, Common Ground on Hostile Turf, including one we didn't get to. You'll have to read it in the book, uh, Proposed Nuclear Storage, at least in the, in the 90s, in San Juan County in uh, Utah. Lucy Moore, thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. I've enjoyed it a lot. Appreciate it. And uh, thanks for listening. For uh, producers Katie Swain and Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening today. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3, offering a house-pickled vegetable demi-baguette sandwich with tomato jam. Menu details at crumbbrothers.com. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a partnership of the Bridgerland Audubon Society, USU Extension, and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University. Hi, I'm Holly Strand from the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University. It's spring, and the birds are starting to make quite a racket outside. Here's a bird we hear every day now, in the morning or at dusk. That's the sound of a male ring-necked pheasant crowing, and then beating his wings against his body. The male is announcing his territory, which may be seven acres or more. Under the right conditions, his announcement can carry up to a mile. Looking out the window, I often see our resident pheasant marching around the yard, sometimes herding a female, or two, or three. For the dominant males keep female harems during the mating season. Last year, another male wandered up our driveway. This led to a skirmish. The two males held their heads low, rumps raised, and tails straight out behind. They pecked and said some choice words to each other in pheasant language. Periodically, they burst into a fluttering fight that involved some vicious biting and kicking. Eventually, the intruder left, leaving the other to resume his post as head pheasant of our yard. If you haven't ever seen a ring-necked pheasant, you are in for a treat when you do. The males have a green iridescent head a bright red face, and a distinctive white ring collar. 
Their spectacular multicolored plumage ends in a long coppery tail crossed with thin black bars. The females are much smaller, their feathers a mottled mixture of brown and buff with dark markings. While not so beautiful, they are much harder to see and therefore are safer from predators. All pheasants are natives of the Old World, more specifically of Southern Asia. The ring-necked pheasant is not a distinct species there. It's an informal name that refers to certain subspecies of the common pheasant, which occupies a huge territory, stretching from the Black Sea and Caucasus region through Central and Middle Asia all the way through China, Korea, and the Russian Far East. Throughout this enormous territory, over 34 different subspecies of common pheasant have evolved, some with ringed markings around their necks and some without. What we have here in America is a hybrid mix of a few of these ring-necked subspecies, mostly from China. Because of their huge popularity as a game bird, ring-necked pheasants have been transplanted all over the world. In the U.S., the pheasant was introduced on the West Coast in the 1860s, but now you can find them in all but the most southern states. They are specially concentrated in our central Corn Belt region. The ring-necked pheasant was first introduced to Utah in about 1890. Their numbers are maintained through transplanting, natural dispersion, and further releases of game-farmed birds. Some of those birds end up on the dinner table, and some of them find refuge on private lands and in Utah neighborhoods like ours. Special thanks to Paul Marvin for his Xenocanto recording. For sources, pictures, and more information, go to www.wildaboututah.org. For Wild About Utah, I'm Holly Strand. Wild About Utah, a partnership of the Bridgerland Audubon Society, USU Extension, and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on UPR is made possible in part by our listeners and the Quinney College of Natural Resources, where students and faculty promote the sustainability of ecosystems and the communities that depend on them. Information at cnr.usu.edu. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.